Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. As I said before, this is one of those many places where God ahead of time promises that there will be a Savior of His people. Do any of you kids know where the first time that promise happened was? Got a couple of the older kids raising their hands. Oh, what do you think? You're small. What? Adam and Eve. That's exactly right. It was all the way back at the beginning. It was, how old are you? Got to get those fingers up one at a time. (laughs) (laughs) That's wonderful. And a half. Sorry, I I don't want to forget that half. Well, what, what a wonderful thing it is. All the way back at Adam and Eve, this promise was given. You know, I asked that question yesterday of a whole room full of grown men and nobody knew. They got back as far as Abraham. Teach your children. Let them learn and know these wonderful promises. So here in Isaiah we have many places in the book of Isaiah promises concerning the Savior, concerning the Messiah. That there would be a child born of woman, born under the law. So here we are, we're celebrating Christmas, and what are we celebrating? We're celebrating the fact that that promise was fulfilled, that there was a child born, a son, to Mary, the Son of God. Do we believe that? If we believe that that child was born to us, Let's see what else was promised here in this chapter of Isaiah. And let us also believe the rest of that promise to us. Please stand for the reading of God's Word from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult 
and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. What are the promises that we have in Christ? Well, there are many more, of course, than we have in these short seven verses. But this is quite the start, isn't it? It's quite the list. It's filled with happy, happy promises for us. One of the first things that you see here, aside from the fact that a child will be born, which we know that's, that's what we're celebrating, that's what we're remembering, we see that there will, that there will be uh, something to do with Galilee of the Gentiles. Do you remember how the, the little girl, the servant girl, at the chief priest's house, knew that Peter was one of Jesus' disciples? Well, she saw him. One of the other people there, though, recognized his accent as being Galilean, from Galilee, just like Jesus. So Jesus came out from the other side of Jordan, spending time in Galilee of the Gentiles. And then what? What does it say? It says, light! There was light! There's going to be a light shining. Shining among the Gentiles. Shining among the darkness. To the people who walk in darkness, they will see a great light. And in the book of John... Right at the beginning, what do we read? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And then you get this this little extra bit. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Did not. Kids, do you know what comprehend means? Do you know what comprehend means? It's kind of a funny one to ask about. Yes. Nope. This is a good guess. What? Understand. Yeah, so the darkness did not understand it. The darkness did not comprehend it. So when I read the word comprehend, and it goes over your head, 
and you don't understand it, it's, you, didn't un, you did not comprehend the meaning of the word comprehend. Here in John, we read that the light did shine, just as was promised, and that sadly, those who were in the darkness didn't understand it. They didn't comprehend it. They didn't grasp it. And yet, that light was shining. And it was not a hopeless shining. Just because the darkness did not comprehend it does not mean that John says, therefore, it was meaningless, right? Now, you think of, you read John, you read of a light not being comprehended, and it makes me think of Plato's cave. You guys know about Plato's cave? Some of you guys who have been classical trained long enough definitely know about Plato's cave, right? <clears throat> Plato's cave is all about people in the darkness not being able to comprehend something, right? I'm getting this right. I didn't go back and look it up because, I mean, I'm hoping I got this right. <laughs> they, they did not comprehend How can you make people comprehend a light? Well, of course, this is the difference between Plato's cave and between the book of John. The light comes into the darkness and shines, and and even still, John records for us that they did not comprehend it. Do you comprehend? Do you understand what it means that Jesus Christ came as a little baby, was born, lived, died, and rose again? Do you comprehend it? Do you understand it? If you do, then you have been removed from the kingdom of of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of light. That is the only way that we are able to comprehend. And it also means that God has fulfilled the next promise that we see in our passage in Isaiah that he multiplies his people. He multiplies the nation. Now the first thing that you realize is that having just said in Galilee of the Gentiles, multiplying the nation means expanding it beyond just the Jews to the rest of us. He, ex- he, he expands the nation. The borders are, are, are to the ends of the earth now. All people are called into his kingdom of light. But to be of the nation, to be of the people of God, to be one of them, to be one of His people, that is how He truly multiplies the nation. Those who are actually a part of His kingdom, who are actually a part of the nation, who have been transferred out of darkness and into light, Who are those people? 
Well, those are people who cannot help but be glad and rejoice, as it says in the rest of that verse. But what does it mean if God is, if God is multiplying his people? What does that mean for us? Well, one of the things that it means is that we are to have children. Because this is one of the ways that God explicitly says from beginning to end in the Bible that he has chosen to, to multiply his people through the fruitfulness of those who are walking by faith, who are a part of his tribe, his nation, his kingdom. This, of course, is very natural. And it can strike us as being a little bit too worldly or a little bit too physical, a little bit too earthy to think about God multiplying his people that way. After all, uh, that's how earthly rulers will sometimes determine that they're going to keep their nation growing, keep their army stocked with nice, strong young men, encourage the people to have children. But this is no reason for us to deny the reality of the fruitfulness of his people being how God has first chosen to establish and to build his kingdom. That he says the promise is to you and to your children. But then, of course, it continues. Who else is the promise to? and to all who are afar off, right? So what does that mean? Well, it means that we have only, we have only partly fulfilled our duty, our part in the work of expanding the nation, as he promised to do here, by having children. We must also be doing the work of calling others out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. There must always be evangelism done among his people, by his people. We must be willing to not just take action to build his kingdom through fruitfulness, we must also be willing to speak to build his kingdom, to call out like the angels did. We have good news. We have glad tidings. It's joyous news. And this is, this is exactly what he says will happen. He's going to multiply the nation, verse 3, and what? Increase their gladness. Why? Why is their gladness increased? Is it simply because they have multiplied? No. Because, you know what? Multiplying makes a, multiplies the what? The problems. <laughs> multiplying multiplies problems. Multiplying multiplies complexity. Multiplying multiplies 
all sorts of difficulties as well, right? This happens both when we have children and when the church grows through evangelism as people come in. You understand? It's never an easy process. And so that alone is not enough for us to rejoice. Mold multiplies, and that's not something that we rejoice about. But when God's nation multiplies, when his people increase, we rejoice precisely because we love those people. And we are delighted that they have been saved. And the only way you can have rejoicing when sinners repent, and remember Jesus says that when one sinner repents, there's more celebrating in heaven, right? We aren't going to celebrate unless we already love them, those who are God's enemies those who are our enemies. Otherwise, we will be like that older brother who is embittered when his sinful, disgusting enemy of a brother repents. But what do we see here? We see that God says he will increase their gladness. The most Obvious reason, of course, is that it's good news to us. We know that we aren't Jews. We have been grafted in. We have been added to his kingdom. And therefore, of course we have to rejoice. We have received the promise of forgiveness of sins through this Jewish boy. He expands the nation, and it includes us. And what can we do but sing? Sing like the angels. Sing like Mary. Literally. If your gladness is increased, I just... Just want you to remember, we can't help but call out when our gladness is increased. If you don't believe me, go on YouTube and just just start watching some of the videos, I'm sure you can find them, of people who were surprised in in a joyous occasion. And what you'll see is they... They burst out with exclamations. They scream. They start crying. And then they hold each other and they start dancing. <laughs> this, is, this is the kind of thing that is what celebration, what gladness increasing leads to. You receive a Savior, and then not sing. That's like uh, that's like receiving a wife and then not reaching out and touching her. 
It's the most natural, built-in-by-God response that we ought to have. And to pretend to be above it is absurd. Of course we're going to sing. Even the angels can't help but burst into song. Why? Well, because they see what's coming. They realize that this is the beginning of that utter fulfillment. Not just of the promises, but the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. This is the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of the yoke of his people being truly and finally broken. The rod that's over their backs being shattered. And yes, it is replaced with the rod and staff of our Savior. But that is something that we take comfort in rather than being weighed down under because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Is that not something to rejoice about? Is that not glad? What is this yoke that is broken? Well, it's, it's several things, but the first thing that I want you to see is that it is the breaking of the yoke, the oppression of sin that reigns over us because we can only be enslaved to sin or enslaved to Christ. And this is why one yoke is replaced with another. One rod is replaced with another. But it's like, uh, it's like having the rod of Sauron replaced with, with the eye staring at you and, and shoving you down into the dirt. You can't bear up under it. And it eats you up from the inside. It's like having that replaced with the rod of Gandalf or something. You know, it's filled with light. It casts away the shadows. What an oppression our sin is to us. How it enslaves. How it destroys. How it kills. It kills gladness. It kills us. It kills our bodies. It kills those around us. It kills relationships. It never stops eating and destroying And when the Savior comes, He breaks it. He breaks its power over us. And that oppression is done. What other oppression is it? Well, it's also the oppression of enemies. 
And even though I already said and reminded us that we must love our enemies, that does not mean that they are not enemies and that they are not oppressing us. Some of these are flesh and blood, but remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so we we see the oppression of Satan, that accuser of the brethren. Even as I get done saying, that rod, that rod that is the oppression of our sin and its power over us is broken, and you say, well, I still have sin in me. And Satan right then says, yeah, you're not a Christian. Yeah, he hasn't accomplished his promise, has he? Yeah, you can't believe this. Right there, that is our enemy. But he also has been, had his power broken. He still, he still is at work. He is still prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Don't be devoured. Flee into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of light, and receive salvation from that yoke, from that burden. Of course, oppression does not just start and end in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. We are also oppressed in various ways physically, oppressed by the people who are still living in darkness in physical ways. As a matter of fact, the Jews refused to bow the knee to Jesus later in his life precisely because he wasn't breaking the yoke the way they wanted. The yoke of oppression that they felt most keenly was the yoke of oppression of the Roman Empire. And what they wanted was for him to establish his kingdom and expand the nation in a way that was totally different than what he had come to do. And therefore they rejected him. What is it that you want out of Jesus? If what you want out of Jesus is to have simply your physical needs met in a way that you no longer have to worry, you no longer have to feel any kind of battle, you no longer have to feel any kind of earthly oppression, no longer have to work hard, no longer have to fight your sin. See, these are some of the things that we can look to to Jesus and say, Come on, give me bread. Come on, where's the sign? Make my life easy, and then I'll believe in you. Jesus breaks the oppression. He breaks that yoke. That rod is lifted off of our backs. Not by raising up an army and destroying the Roman Empire. 
but rather by raising up an army, his church, and sending them out into the Roman Empire so that what? It is converted. And they are no longer enemies, but they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. His kingdom is not of this world. If your focus is on the here and now of this world, then you will not accept the fulfillment of this promise. You will not rejoice in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, this next promise isn't for you, that the fight will end, that he will put an end to the fighting, and he will establish peace. A glorious peace. We see in this passage that the boots themselves will no longer be necessary. The cloaks that are used in battle, they will be what? Burned up. Fuel for the fire. And we know from elsewhere what else will be included? I think this one is less well-known. You don't really think of the boots and the cloaks being burned as much as you think of the... The plowshares are hammered into... I mean, the swords are hammered into plowshares, right? And the bows are burned as fuel for the fire. All of the weapons, all of the accoutrements, all of the clothes of war are no longer needed in Christ. When he fulfills his promise, when he completes the work on that great and glorious day, when he finally and utterly destroys our oppressor and casts Satan into hell, along with all of those who have rejected the appearing of this Christ child. There will no longer be any war, any battle, but there will be peace. And that peace will increase the government will rest on the shoulders of this Messiah. What does that mean? It means that he is in charge. It means he's in charge of you. It means he's in charge of your life. But is Jesus just in charge of his people? Is he just in charge of the good angels? Is this some sort of epic battle between two sons, the good son and the bad son, Jesus and Satan? No. Because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And Satan is no son.
You see Jesus' authority and power when he commands evil spirits. And they must come out. And they beg that they not be cast into the pit ahead of time. And so if he is establishing peace, he is also ruling with authority. He's establishing his kingdom with justice. How can we look at this promise and rejoice? Well, if you love justice, how could you not rejoice? Knowing that seeing all of what is wicked and evil and seeing all of the terrors and evils in this world, and there are many, And how often it is impossible for justice to be served in this world because of wicked, corrupt authorities. And listen, you can, you can see examples all over the place. And many of the things that the social justice movement is concerned about are precisely these sorts of injustices. Injustices that ultimately cannot be solved apart from Christ establishing his kingdom. Should we care? Oh, absolutely. Yes, we should care. This last week I got an email from my brother-in-law who grew up in the Congo and he sent just a a news article that talked about how Apple and several other extremely large multinational corporations with billions and billions of dollars were being sued by a Western agency of some sort because they're using cobalt, a mineral mined in the Congo. uh, And the accusation is that in those mines were child workers, uh, whether slave or otherwise is almost beside the point because of the dangerous conditions, terrible working conditions, number of hours that they'd have to work, etc., etc. And so, my brother-in-law simply asked the question, you know, if the government of the Congo is unwilling and unable to do anything about this, what exactly can be done? Well, you can collect a lot of money from multinational corporations, but are you going to solve the problem that way? No. Justice and righteousness must be established in government in order for these things to be done away with. And so when it says that his government will increase, that his power will increase, that he will rule with righteousness and justice, that is when these things will ultimately be ended. And so if you love the little children in the Congo who are forced to work in terrible conditions in mines, then this is something to rejoice about. But of course, you don't have to go to Africa to find examples of things to be concerned about, right? Do you love justice? 
Do you love righteousness? When he comes and he establishes his rule and his authority over all of the earth, it's very easy to celebrate about the fact that those problems will be done away with. Those victims will be receiving the justice that we wish they could receive now, right? But it's a little bit harder to celebrate when we have been unkind to people, to our own brothers and sisters, and we think, I'm not sure I want justice to be done. I'm not sure that I want him in authority over me, ruling with righteousness and justice. Because I'm not sure I want that justice coming on me. And to those people who do not want him as king over them, reject him as Lord and Savior. The end of this passage is not just that he will establish and he will uphold his kingdom and he will uphold it with justice and righteousness, but that it will be forever and He closes with an exclamation point that is, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So don't think that God is uncaring about you or about the Congo. Don't think that God is uncaring about your sin, your life, that it won't matter. He has zeal. He is zealous to accomplish this, to establish his rule, to rule over all. That includes your life. His hand is not too short. He's not too distracted by the other 7 billion people on the world, in in the earth, to think about you and whether what you're doing is right or wrong. He is not unloving enough to say, well, you know what? I'm just going to let him do whatever. I've got other people to worry about. No, it is precisely because he cares, precisely because he has zeal precisely because he is loving that he will discipline his sons. He will not simply give up. He is zealous to accomplish these promises. And so we see at that that first that first promise is repeated and repeated, and repeated, and he does the work day after day, year after year, century after century to prepare for the coming of that child. And 
And we celebrate it today. And we remember it wasn't just that he was going to come. It wasn't just that there was going to be a baby born. It's that he was going to be the king. That he is going to establish his nation. That he is going to make us righteous. Let's pray.